Hello and welcome to the EMJ podcast. In the place of our usual host, Dr. Jonathan Sakia, this episode will be hosted by me, Evgenia Kutsuki, the editor of EMJ. Today, I'm joined by Professor Adam Fox, who's a consultant pediatric allergist at Guy's and St. Thomas's Hospitals. Adam is also a professor of pediatric allergy at King's College London and the founding director of the King's College London Allergy Academy, which is a postgraduate educational program. Adam chaired the UK Department of Health National Care Pathway for Food Allergy in Childhood and was a member of the National Institute of Healthcare and Clinical Excellence Clinical Guideline Development Group for the assessment and diagnosis of food allergy in children. He's also the senior author of the International Milk Allergy and Primary Care Guideline, which was awarded the Allergy UK Innovation Award in 2018. He previously chaired the Pediatric Committee of the British Society of Allergy and Clinical Immunology and was elected as president, the first pediatrician to hold this position. Adam, welcome. It's a great pleasure to have you on our podcast and thank you for joining me. It's a pleasure to be here. Thanks for inviting me along. So I wanted to start by asking, what was it that inspired you to specialise in allergy and specifically paediatric allergies? Well, were you asking me to think about something that happened 25 years ago now, dim distant past? Um, I I don't think I was ever one of these vocational doctors. I've got a got a colleague who's an orthopaedic surgeon who I knew as a um, as a toddler. We were we were at nursery together, and when he was three or four years of age, he was cutting up his um, teddy bears and sewing them back together. He always knew exactly what he wanted to do. I I, I was never that person. I can recall as a 16-year-old um, being taken around the careers fair at um, school and seeing the room where they were talking about medicine and expressing no interest whatsoever and walking past it. And somehow between then and, and the age of 17 and a half, I made made a very big decision that, that, that influenced the, the, the career that I went into. Um, that said, once I started at medical school and, and started my very early training, um, I knew I wanted to be a paediatrician. I thoroughly enjoyed working with children. Um, I, I just found the whole thing fascinating and the whole dynamic between um, the child and the parents and, and, and the doctor and the parents as well as the child um, f- far more engaging than I, than, than I found working with just adults. And I think uh, in the early stages of my career, I anticipated that I would be a general paediatrician and, and that's how I started my specialist training as a, as a general paediatrician. And then about a year or so into that, um, I'll admit to, to, to finding some of it quite challenging. I was working in um, a very high pressure environment in, in, I guess, what would now be considered the olden days of um, working on call every, every third night and, and being in the hospital from um, Friday morning till Monday afternoon, as, as was the case with the National Health Service in the UK in the early 2000s. It, it was tough going. Um, and thinking to myself, did I really want that life um, as, as a generalist for, for the rest of my career? Did I want to be in my, my mid-50s, um, still getting called in regularly in the middle of the night and, and doing what was essentially quite acute work? And it was around this time I started talking to other people who were making other decisions a few years ahead of me who were subspecializing in pediatrics. And one of the areas that somebody suggested to me, um, in fact, I can remember it very distinctly on, on a day after a particularly difficult on-call. I was working at a hospital where um, we had a level of responsibility out of hours, which would be just unthinkable now. Um, and it sounded very appealing. It, 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 it was um, an unusual area of medicine because in the UK in particular, there was only a tiny, tiny number of special specialists. 
And that meant there was opportunities to get involved in a whole range of things that may be much more difficult if you were going into a more crowded specialty. So I could see that the people that were doing um, paediatric allergy and and because of the way that training structured in the UK, it was only paediatric allergy that was open to me at that point, um, that these these doctors were involved in research, in um, clinical research, as well as as, um, more basic science research. But they were getting involved in um, clinical leadership and they were getting involved in uh, of the specialty and they're getting involved in education because there were so few of them that they sort of all had to. And, and But that really appealed, the idea of having lots of different aspects um, to your work rather than just doing the same thing all the time. Um, I, I really liked. And then, of course, it was an area, once I started to learn a little bit more about it, where there was an enormous potential to, to help people, that provision of allergy services at the time in the NHS were extraordinarily lacking. There were very long waiting lists to see, see a specialist. And when you could see them, you could really add value. You could really make their lives better um, <clears throat> by addressing the whole range of things that they often had going on because nobody was ever looking after these kids holistically. They were just trying to manage their eczema in isolation of their food allergy and their respiratory issues or trying to manage their asthma in, in isolation of their, their rhinitis. Um, and so having the opportunity to be able to manage all of these things together um, was really fulfilling because the patients would let you know they you were really helping them. Um, and so that really set me off on the journey. Thank you. And may I say, it looks like you made the right decision uh, given the outcome. And of course, it sounds like a discipline that gave you the opportunity to apply yourself in many different ways. And uh, no doubt the need for allergists is ever growing. Uh, so you established the largest NHS children's clinic for sublegal immunotherapy. Could you walk us through how this treatment works and how it could potentially be life changing? I was very lucky that when it came to the end of my training, and this is now 2005, 2006, um, that there was an unusual opportunity because for, for most people, a job would hopefully come, come up at somewhere that you wanted to work and you could apply and, and pick up with, with, with a team that was already there and try and develop your service. But um, in my case, there was an opportunity to start working in a completely brand new service at a very large and established teaching hospital at Guy's and St. Thomas's, where there was already a very large and um, very, very successful adult allergy service, but they'd recognised there that there was a need for the development of a paediatric service. Um, They they had a pretty overwhelming number of um, referrals and requests into the adult service to see kids, and and they recognised rightly that they weren't paediatricians, the issues were different, so they didn't have the skill set to manage this. And they were trying to manage ad hoc with general paediatricians who didn't have a training in allergy, um, or other people that worked elsewhere just doing the odd clinic, and they realised that they needed something bigger than that. And and Tackley, who was the professor of adult allergy at the time, an extraordinarily ambitious um, and and successful doctor who had a a fantastic vision to develop a really large-scale paediatric allergy service that would be truly um, specialist and comprehensive and and be up there as soon as possible with the adult service that was already there. Um, Now, part of that was bringing across colleagues who who would set up an academic program, but part of it, of course, was developing the clinical service. And um, I I had the opportunity to um, be the first of those consultants that was appointed um, to start leading the clinical service and became clinical lead, which would, would be very unusual as a, as a new new clinician um, in a service, but, but got to hold that role for nine years. 
um, to essentially establish this brand new service. Now, as well as setting up all the all the regular clinics and all the other parts of the service, one thing that we really wanted to do differently was to bring immunotherapy into the practice. It's something that had very little traction amongst paediatric allergy at the time. Um, it was very hard because of the structure of the NHS to get new treatments that had a real cost attached to them into the service. But when you're setting up something from new, it was easier to do that. So we were very determined myself and the colleagues, George Dutoy, Gideon Lack, who I set the service up with, to right from the get-go um, be able to offer what were then pretty new treatments, sublingual immunotherapy. So this is really a, a, a sort of novel treatment at the time for um, people who suffered from very significant respiratory allergies. So um, grass pollen and tree pollen allergy causing severe hay fever, dust mite allergies. Whereas traditionally for adults, when, when these cases were severe, they'd be treated with injection immunotherapy. And that was something that was difficult practically to do with kids because um, they didn't like lots of injections. Um, but also there were very, very real safety concerns. Between the 1950s and the 1980s in the UK, there'd been a significant number of deaths as a result of inje injection immunotherapy, and that's clearly just not acceptable for what's essentially a treatment for hay fever, where sublingual immunotherapy was dramatically safer, um, but almost as effective as a treatment for these um, for these patients. So essentially what, what we're trying to do with sublingual immunotherapy is retrain the immune system so that it reacts less to the allergen in question. So it's a very specific treatment. It needs to be directed at the allergy that's causing the problem. Um, so if you've got very bad hay fever and you've been on nasal sprays and antihistamines, and despite that, your life is pretty miserable for three, three or four months of the year, that this is a treatment that can actually alter the under, underlying allergic problem. So it can make you less allergic to grass pollen, essentially, so that your symptoms are less, your reliance on medication is less. But what's most important is that it's disease mod modifying. So after a three-year course of treatment, you can reasonably expect the benefits to continue, even though the treatment has stopped. Um, and and that's, that's a real game changer for people who have got very severe hay fever. I think hay fever is one of the conditions that we treat that's really underestimated that because for most people who have it, and it's very common, 25% of adults in the UK have got hay fever, for most people it is just a bit irritating and a bit of antihistamine and you're fine. But for a significant minority, it's a much bigger problem than that. And for some people, it really impacts on their quality of life in a very major way for a number of months of the year. And to be able to give those people their lives back for that time can be transformational. And, and we get so many fantastic letters and um, communications from patients telling us just how much better their lives have been throughout the spring and summer um, because the treatments worked well. Um, so it's been enormously fulfilling area to be involved in. It's been fantastic to see it grow from you know what I remember very clearly, the first raft of about 10 or 12 patients that we saw, I could probably at a push name most of them, um, that we treated in 2006 with the treatment to now seeing hundreds of children every year going through these treatments um, and getting real benefit from it. That sounds uh, really life-changing. I have people close to me suffering from severe hay fever, and I'm sure uh, this would make a great difference to them. Uh, and this summer seems to be have been particularly bad for hay fever. And in the past few decades in general, we have witnessed a big increase in allergies, which is often attributed to living in a more sterile environment. Is there any truth in that? Is it really because we're too clean? Can you help us separate facts from myths and give us an overview of what could instead be causing this phenomenon? I mean, that's the big question, isn't it, at the moment? And I think uh, of all the questions I get asked at dinner parties when I when I tell them I'm an allergy doctor, it's why, why are there so many allergies now? You know, when I was at school, there was nobody with allergies. Um, 
I think there's there's two parts of that. I mean, the first is is has there really been a big rise in allergies? And I think if you think back in the, you know, in the, in, in the sort of time frame of decades, you know, 40, 50 years ago, yes, there are more allergies now than there were 40 or 50 years ago. I think that's pretty plain. Um, I think there's a common misperception that we're in the midst of an epidemic of growing allergies and that somehow there's more allergies this year than last year and, and, and last year than the year before. And I don't think that's the case. Um, I think there is definitely an increased awareness around allergic disease. There's certainly much more media coverage of food allergy, which has really entered the public consciousness in the last few years in a way previously it hadn't and was just put down to being a little bit of a fad. Um, helpfully, that, that, that has improved. Uh, that, that sort of gives the perception that we're um, still seeing an upward curve there, but the evidence doesn't really support that. I think what we've seen is a growth between now and 30 or 40 years ago, and I think that's fair to say for asthma, eczema, hay fever, as well as food allergy. Then, of course, the big question is, well, w- what's driven this? And the accepted wisdom for many years was that this was related to the, the clean child hypothesis, this idea that um, we're cleaner and the price we pay for being cleaner and bringing our children up in an environment where their immune systems are less challenged is that they're more likely to develop allergies. Um, I think that's got some pretty big holes in it now, and I think we're sort of moving past that. It goes back to to David Strachan's theories from, from the 1980s that noted the what we call the birth order effect. So this um, observation that the older child in the family um, seemed to have more allergies than younger children, and that was put down to the idea that the um, older child had far less challenge to their immune system because they were born into environments where there weren't other kids bringing lots of viruses and bugs home from nursery. And as a consequence, their immune system had less challenge and, and was more likely to, to inappropriately go down the allergic route, whereas younger children um, had their older siblings bringing all these bugs home and hence more challenge to their immune system and they were less likely to get allergies. But the reality of it was is that the birth order effect wasn't consistent. It, wasn't, it was seen in some studies but not in others, um, and so it didn't really really hold up. Um, I think we've evolved in our understanding and it's becoming increasingly clear that, that, that this is more to do with the microbiome, um, so to, to do with our gut flora, that um, something has changed over the last 40 or 50 years in, in our way of life and, and in so many different areas that are impacting um, our gut bacteria and it's everything right from, from birth, from being born in hospital rather than being born at home, from being um, given far more courses of antibiotics to um, less breastfeeding, later weaning, um, a whole range of different things are, are, are impacting, of course, massive changes in diet over the course of the last 40 or 50 years. And that all of these are having an impact on our gut flora that are making it less good at developing healthy relationships with the outside world. And as a consequence, we're um, seeing more allergic um, disease. I think we're at the absolute inf- infancy of our understanding of this, and of course, you can't really talk about you know causes of allergies without thinking a lot about genetics. There's clearly a large genetic component too. So an interplay of a range of complex factors, which have created what appears to be some sort of perfect storm over the last few years that have led to this real change in disease pattern. Um, it's fascinating. I'd love to say I've got a, a brief answer that really answers the question properly, but I don't. Thank you. You're raising a very interesting point about the microbiome, which I wasn't aware of. And I'm sure factors like diet, uh, ultra-processed foods, uh, there, there might be more research to be uh, carried out in that respect. So I'm looking forward to reading more about it and uh, to finding out more over the next few years, um, more insights. So 
allergies have in the past year been on the news because of concerns surrounding the COVID vaccines. What do you say to those who are still skeptical about the vaccine, fearing severe allergic reactions? Is this fear justified? Well, there's no doubt the most common question that I get asked by by, by patients and, and in fact non-patients now um, is, you know, is the vaccine safe? Am, am I going to have an allergic reaction to it? And a, and a real um, presumption that people who have allergic issues already, you know, whether it's um, hay fever or, or, or food allergies, that, that they're going to be at a heightened risk of having the COVID vaccine. Um, I, I remember very, very distinctly a, a day in December of um, 2020 when um, the vaccine program was launched and, you know, I didn't have any involvement whatsoever in it. I, I knew a number of people that did just because allergists and their immunologists um, but like everybody else, was extraordinarily excited about the, you know, the, get this vaccine coming along. And then in the first day of the vaccine rollout, when of course there was an enormous focus, and, and bear in mind that in the UK, of course, we were we were the first ones with with the vaccine, so we were literally the eyes of the world on us. And there were two very severe allergic reactions. And I, I remember when the news started filtering through, there was a little bit of, um, uh, you know, certainly amongst colleagues, a little bit of dismissiveness about saying, oh, you know, it was probably, a, you know, some hives or, you know, a little bit of a, a rash. And then I, I knew there was a problem when I got a call from the MHRA, which is the, um, the regulator in the UK. Um, at the time, I was president of the British Society for Allergy and Clinical Immunology, and along with a couple of other colleagues, we were asked to come along to an expert working, working group where it wasn't really a, a, an invitation. It was very much a, a, an order um, to attend this meeting. And at the meeting, we, we got to hear from the director of um, one of the hospitals who had been involved in the rollout. Um, and actually, he was a, 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 a intensivist, so somebody absolutely used to dealing with um, um, very sick patients. And he was present at one of these allergic reactions because he'd obviously been there for the launch of the um, of the vaccine program. And, and he described very clearly an anaphylaxis. You know, there was no doubt this was the real deal. Um, and we realized that, yeah, the, the, there'd only been about 1,500 jabs given and, and a couple of severe reactions. We had to work very quickly to ensure that we had sensible advice um, to um, support the MHRA in making recommendations to ensure the safety of everybody and at the same time ensuring that um, that there was continued confidence in in the vaccine program you know it wasn't just a matter of saying we've got to stop this because there might be that there might be allergic reactions there was a, um, a need for the vaccines to be rolled out as quickly as possible um, I think we learned an enormous amount going forward after that because um, there was a pretty large-scale program going on. Other countries very quickly joined in, so the amount of data that was being supplied was enormous. And um, it became very clear that, that this had been, a, 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 for want of a better word, a remarkable coincidence that we should have two such severe reactions on the first day of the rollout. Um, was, was it's still very difficult to explain because the as, it's, as has become apparent and as, as suggested by the... Um, the studies that have been done in advance, um, it is still extraordinarily rare to have a severe allergic reaction to, to, to COVID vaccines. It's still in the order of, you know, one in a few hundred thousand. Um, I think the accepted wisdom around vaccines generally is the risk of a severe anaphylaxis is something in the order of one in a million. It looks like it's a little higher in, um, in, in COVID vaccines, but it's still extraordinarily rare. And um, thankfully, you know, certainly in the UK, you only get your vaccines somewhere that they have access to adrenaline so you can deal with a reaction. And so um, 
there were still reports coming in because, of course, this was happening at an enormous scale. But at least it became clear <clears throat> relatively quickly that this wasn't um, going to be a vaccine that was causing an enormous amount of severe allergic reactions. But, um, you know, we had to play it safe. And in the first instance, there was a suggestion that people who had a history of allergic problems didn't um, have the vaccine or had it under sort of special precautions. But then it very soon became clear that it wasn't atopic individuals. It wasn't people with hay fever and asthma and eczema and food allergies. So thankfully, over time, it became apparent that this was not an issue um, that was specific to people already with allergies, that these reactions were essentially idiosyncratic. They just happened rather randomly. Um, but we were able to um, identify PEG, so polyethylene glycol, as an issue in the, in the Pfizer vaccine. Um, although it, it remained a very difficult story because there were people with known PEG allergies who weren't reacting, people um, who didn't appear to be allergic to PEG who did react. And, and I don't think we've really completely bottomed this story out yet. But the important thing is, is it's become apparent that it's safe for people with allergies. And I mean, that's the key thing for me and to be able to tell all of my patients when they say, is it, is it safe for me to have the vaccine? It's, it's yes, it is. You're not at an enhanced risk because you have a history of allergies that allergic reactions do happen. They're, they're unpredictable. That happens to people who we simply couldn't have expected and um, would have had an issue. But you're having your vaccine in an environment where there is access to the correct emergency treatment for allergic reactions. Um, and, you know, like every medical intervention, it's, it's the balance of the, of the benefits versus the risk. But the risk of severe reactions is very, very small. And um, I, th- I think that's that, that that's now the position. And I think I think that message is getting through. Thank you. It sounds like a very unlucky coincidence that these two allergic reactions happened on on the first day of the vaccine um, administration. And is there, um, I just want to ask a sub question here, but um, would you say that the trends that you see with allergic reactions to the COVID vaccine are comparable to what you see with other types of vaccine or do they differ in any way or is it even possible to compare I think yeah I think look you can compare just you know head to head what's the chance of you having a a a albeit unpredictable allergic reaction it's generally one in a million for COVID it's probably one in 250,000 so maybe you could say yes it's a little bit more common but it's incredibly uncommon um in, in in that same context thank you so as an expert advisor to the national institute of healthcare and clinical excellence center amongst your other impactful roles uh, in the allergy field how would you say that the management of food allergy has evolved over the past few years i think of all the areas that i deal with as an allergist that the, the one that's been most exciting to be involved in where there's been the most innovation and change has been in food allergy. And if I think back to when we started the allergy service at Geisen St. Thomas's, so 2006, 16 years ago, um, things really were very different. It's, 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 it's hard actually to imagine the, the way we used to practice because it was, it was quite frustrating. It was really essentially we were act, acting as a diagnostic service. Um, we were t- identifying from histories and allergy testing what people were allergic to, but we didn't really have anything to offer them other than saying, well, this is what you're going to have to avoid be very careful, speak to our dietitians who are brilliant at educating patients, at ensuring that they can have as full a diet as possible whilst carefully avoiding the things that they're allergic to. But beyond that, it was really crossing your fingers and, and, and hoping it was outgrown, seeing them again in a year or two and repeating the tests and see if things have changed. So as a, as a, as a physician, not an enormously sort of fulfilling area of medicine, because 
you want to do more. You want to to, to, to make the halogens go away or be better or make them safer somehow. And that there was not really an obvious way to do that. And, and in the course of the next sort of 10 years, we saw such a dramatic range of different things happening. So early research that was showing promise in a whole range of different areas around um, preventing food allergies, um, about ways of managing food allergies that became a reality very quickly. The most common allergies we deal with milk and egg, the introduction of allowing children to trial baked egg and baked milk, of which the majority of them were fine with, was a real game changer. And that opened up the whole door of desensitization. And, and you know, now here we are um, a number of years later with a fully licensed peanut desensitization project uh, product. Um, but also a lot of interest around the potential role of pre and probiotics influencing disease course, which has sadly not quite developed in the, in, in the way that we'd hoped. And, and I remember in 2014, we published an article with colleagues about what we described as the active management of food allergy, of, of moving away from what was very much a passive process of making a diagnosis and then sitting back and hoping um, to a more active process where we had a whole range of um, interventions around active introduction of other foods. So if you if you diagnose an egg allergy, actively encouraging the patients to get peanuts into their diet to try and prevent them from developing a peanut allergy, which they're otherwise at high risk of. Um, the, um, the, the, the use of desensitization, which has now become very much part of everyday practice. All of this felt like we were actually doing things. Um, and so it was now much more of an active process. And it's really nice to see over time that that's got real traction and that um, you know, globally from all over the place, we're now seeing really exciting research and changes in practice that, that reflect this. So um, we're in a much better place, but there is still so much further to go. We, we are a, a mile away from curing food allergy, but there's an increasing number of angles and we're seeing um, the whole field of food desensitization pretty much explode with um, a whole range of different ways of desensitizing potentially, which hopefully will turn out to be safer and more effective than what we're able to do at the moment. And um, I often say to patients that, you know, we may not be able to do what we want to do now in terms of changing the course of food allergies, but do I really think that when the three or four year old in front of me is, is my age, that they're still going to be avoiding the foods they're avoiding now? No, I don't think they will be. I can't tell you exactly why they won't be. It won't be because they've naturally outgrown it because they, they, they rarely do that if they've got allergies to things like nuts and fish. But there are so many angles showing promise and so many potential treatments and things have moved on so quickly that I really genuinely do think that, that there'll be ways of, of allowing these children to have a completely full diet. Thank you. We have heard many times as an urban myth, uh, which has been reinforced often by the media, that allergies get worse over time. Is this really the natural progression of allergies? So I think there's the, the, the allergies are a field that's full of urban myths. I mean, we hear this in you know, so many different things all the time. One, one of the urban myths with real traction is this idea that each time you have a reaction, it gets worse. And um, frustratingly, I've heard it on, on TV from TV doctors who really ought to know better because it it's firstly it's not true um secondarily and, and and what's you know what's really bad about it is that it creates an enormous amount of anxiety because if you've recently had a reasonably bad reaction you'll, you'll be convinced that the next one's going to kill you um and, and that creates e enormous and completely unnecessary anxiety until that reaction happens and it's just not as bad as anyone expected um so it's one of the things that when I first diagnose a, a family or a child with a food allergy, I'm very, very keen to mention these sorts of things because they're going to hear them. They're going to get online and they're going to hear these things and it's going to cause a lot of anxiety. Um, so in short, um, 
No, each time you react, it doesn't get worse. Each reaction is essentially independent of the others. Yes, though, if you've had a bad reaction in the past, you are more at risk of having a bad reaction in the future, so be prepared for it, um, but it doesn't mean it will happen. Um, but very broadly, if you step back and think about, well, where does this come from, this this sort of urban myth, often there's a reason that these things have happened, it's probably reasonable to say that you do see more significant reactions with food allergy amongst teenagers and um, young adults, that's where you tend to see the most severe reactions, simply because of the sort of oomph in their immune system, for want of a better word, um, compared to younger children. And so it's easy to sort of step back and say, well, the first time they reacted to peanut when they were two, it was mild, and then it, they had a more significant reaction when they were 11, and then they had anaphylaxis when they were 18, that you you, you think, ah, oh, here we go, there's a pattern here. But of course, there's plenty of people who have had severe reactions who go on to have minor reactions after that. You know, each reaction is is unpredictable. It will be influenced by how much you've eaten, the form of the food you've eaten, um, your state of health on the day, which is an important um, determinant as well, plus a large dollop of unpredictability as well. So you simply cannot say it's going to get worse each time. Thank you for dispelling that myth for us. And on the topic of adrenaline auto injections, it seems that the number of pens prescribed has gone up significantly in the past few years. Is this something you have noticed in your own clinical practice? Very much so. I mean, it's it's really exploded the the, the number of adrenaline auto injectors. So uh, I understand that I, I'm I'm reticent to use the numbers because I'm not sure where I've got them from. But but I remember hearing that in the 1980s there were less than a hundred people in the country who carried adrenaline, whereas now there's you know approaching 400,000, and there's really clear evidence of a massive increase in in um, the amount of adrenaline being carried yet. If you look at the fatality number of anaphylaxis fatalities that have happened over over the years, thankfully it's small. Of course, each one is an enormous tragedy, and every one it needs to be learnt from because there's invariably lessons in there that we need to take forward to reduce the risk of subsequent deaths. But actually, the case fatality rate, so the likelihood of dying if you have an anaphylaxis, has come down over the years. Um, yet we've seen this massive increase of of um, prescription of adrenaline and I, I'm very clear in my mind what's what's driving it and, it, and it's not a good thing um, unfortunately I think for people with food allergy they often they've what they've heard about food allergy comes from from the media um, it's it, you know in a way yes it's positive that media reports fatal anaphylaxis because it, it raises the um, profile of allergy so that people take it more seriously and there's been a real sea change in, in the attitude towards food allergies since um, Natasha Lapperuse died and her, her the, the phenomenal campaigning from her parents, which has led to a very real change in legislation around food allergy and a much greater awareness that allergies really are, you know, can be severe and need to be taken seriously. But often for people who aren't getting the care that they deserve and the information from reliable sources, they have a um, uh, an unhelpfully disproportionate view of the risk. You know, thankfully, if you've got a food allergy, your risk of dying is still incredibly small. Um, but I don't think that conversation is had with people. I don't think the conversation about risk is had properly with people. And I think sometimes it becomes easier for doctors to just say, well, you've got a food allergy, you better carry an EpiPen um, or a Jext or an Emiraid. Um And the message that parents take from that is, well, they, they're giving me this sort of handheld device um, that's going to save my life, have a severe reaction, there must be a pretty high risk of that happening. Um, I often ask patients, you know, what they think the survival rate would be were they to have an anaphylaxis. 
you know, and they didn't have their adrenaline there. And often they'll say, oh, well, you wouldn't survive it, when actually the risk of dying, even if you have an anaphylaxis untreated, is incredibly small. It's in the sort of, you know, 0.00 percentage points. Um, but that's not the perception parents have because nobody has that conversation about uh, about risk with them. And, and as a consequence, they have an enormous amount of anxiety about, around dying from food allergy, which is profoundly unlikely. Of course, they need to know it's a possibility um, and they need to be prepared for it. And the right patients who have risk factors should be carrying adrenaline. Um, but um, having people with egg all- mild egg allergies that can eat baked egg absolutely fine and are very likely to outgrow it, in the next year or two, um, carrying adrenaline and fear of their lives if they eat the wrong thing just doesn't make any sense. So I think there's a big gap here around information and education. Um, and it's been filled simply by people prescribing EpiPens, which is just not the right way to deal with that, unfortunately. Sounds like increasing awareness and um making the patients more informed would bring great benefits. Um, Now, I want to um, focus on your own career and achievements. Uh, You have been president for the British Society of Allergy and Clinical Immunology. What would you say has been your proudest achievement in this role? Well, okay. So I, I was I was elected. I was the first pediatrician to be elected, which was enormously proud, you know, proud thing for me. Um, it's that the society had become increasingly sort of paediatric dominated as uh, as paediatric allergy grew within um, within the context of an established specialty that was um, predominantly adult based. Um, so that was in, in 2018. I, I had big plans, um, spent a lot of time developing a strategy. Um, and then, of course, uh, a year or so into my tenure, um, COVID hit. Um, and that blew everything out of the water. So I guess maybe my biggest achievement was still standing at the end of the three years and um, just just managing what ended up getting thrown at the society, especially when, of course, things became a lot more involved for allergy doctors, um, because not only were we managing um, just the specialty during an unprecedented time, which had enormous challenges with it, and um, my colleagues were just phenomenal in the way they stepped up to it, a real inspiration. But of course, there was a whole allergic component of the vaccine rollout which really landed very hard particularly on the adult allergy colleagues um, because everybody was looking to them to know what to do when nobody really knew what to do Um, and again they stepped up brilliantly to that. Um, I think though you know now I've come to the end of my tenure I stepped down um, in in October of last year reflecting back uh, and look at the the achievements There, there, there were loads of things that happened that were really positive um, we established um, funding. We, we lobbied hard for the funding of the UK fatal anaphylaxis registry, something that I sort of had committed myself to doing as I started, and we were successful in getting money from the Food Standards Agency, which is a UK government agency. Um, we set up and, and, and delivered a national allergy education strategy, which I think was very, very much needed. Um, we set up a, a group around inclusivity and diversity and equality, which was lacking and needed. And I think we really um, led the way among specialist societies around um, the way that we started to integrate that inclusivity into our day-to-day work. And um, I think one of the highlights of the the whole three years for me was having uh, an American doctor talk to 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 our national meeting unfortunately was online rather than in person um, about racism in medicine. You know, these were just the areas that nobody had gone near um, previously, and I was really proud that again the society stepped up and and led the way at um, at, at, at 
looking at this and, and trying to start to address some of these long-standing issues. But I think if, if I sort of try and reflect on my own involvement in that, I think what I'm pleased I did is that I, I didn't try and lead all of this stuff myself. I, I allowed other people to do the, these things and found the right people um, and encouraged them to, to take leadership roles themselves. And I was really keen that we just broadened out the society. It, it, it had sort of, you know, looking back, I've been a member since... 2003 I think um, it did feel a little insular um, it was it was inward looking it had a small membership um, and I think what if if I've got a legacy it's broadening the society out both in terms of its membership which is you know bigger than ever um, but also the number of people involved doing different things and being much more outward looking I, I think that would be what I'd be most proud of Thank you. Uh, it's a great distinctions. So I wanted to give a couple more of examples of your distinctions. You were awarded the Raymond Horton Smith Prize from the School of Clinical Medicine at the University of Cambridge for the best thesis presented. And you have also received the Will- William Falkland Award in recognition of outstanding contribution in the field of allergy. For the benefit of any trainees uh, and aspiring allergists uh, that might be listening to us, what would you say is the magic recipe for excellence in your discipline? I I think it's the same thing I say to my kids who are now sort of at university age. Just do something you enjoy because you're way better to be good at it. Um, That doesn't mean you can't. You know, you don't have to do stuff you don't enjoy um, and, and and persevere and, and, you know, bang your head against the wall with things that you're not enjoying. But I think I, I think that for me, the, the biggest blessing of my career is I just love my job. Um, I'm, you know, just just thoroughly enjoy doing it. I, I, I find myself really energized by um, clinical work. Um because maybe it's look, it's, it's selfish, isn't it? Because you know the patients tell you that they feel better for what you've done for them, and, and, and there's no better feeling than that. Um, but then there's so many different ways of doing that, and I think for me, what I've really enjoyed about my career is the all the different things I've been involved in. I've been able to get involved in in research. I've been extraordinarily lucky that I've worked with people whose research has been really successful. So that 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 helps obviously, um, and we've seen changes that have stemmed from that work that have influence public health guidance globally um which is a, a huge honor um but also involved in in education um setting up a large education initiative like the allergy academy been involved in clinical leadership um both in my own hospital and also around the specialty nas- nationally um had the opportunity to work with loads of different exter- external organizations which just makes life altogether more interesting meeting lots of different people been able to travel around the world um, lecturing and again seeing seeing people who do what I do but in a completely different setting which has always been fascinating and and for me that's that that's been what makes um, what really makes my career more, more exciting has been that breadth of different things and I, I, I think I just my personality I'm somebody who just enjoys doing lots of different things rather than doing the same thing all the time other people it's going to be different but I think the important thing is doing something which you enjoy because you're just way more likely to be good at it. Uh, I think you have inspired with these words, you probably have inspired a lot of people to explore the field of allergy as a career a bit more. It sounds absolutely fascinating. And to close, we love asking our guests a version of this question. If you had three wishes that would lead to improvement in human health, what would they be? 
Wow, that's a big question, isn't it? And the pressure's on because I can't just say clean water and vaccination programs because that's too easy. Um, so, okay, so let's think from a non-allergy perspective first. I, th- I think I think there's two things. I think um, having universal healthcare, sort of socialised medicine that really works for everybody, would, would be would be the dream, wouldn't it? it, it I'd like to think the National Health Service is sort of as close as anyone's got to it anywhere. But having worked inside it for 25 years, I could also see the very significant flaws that are there. And if we could get past those, if we could find a way of making the workforce feel more valued and and certainly the nursing workforce feel more valued and the allied health professionals, that would make an enormous difference because... the I, 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 I never fail to be shocked when I go to conferences in the US for example and people talk about well this is how we you know we manage this condition for our insured patients and then say oh look and here's a tip for your uninsured patients you can use this that or the other and it's just like how on earth do you sleep at night when 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 you have patients who just can't just do what you think is best for them and the system doesn't allow you to do that and I think that's the, the the NHS doctor in me because that's you know that 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 just seems like an absolute basic right of everybody to have access to the best possible healthcare. yet of course that's just not the reality globally for the vast majority of people so finding a model that really works um, for universal healthcare, I think would be number one number two I think would be look if we've learned nothing over over the last few years it's it's the, this enormous issue we've got around misinformation now that it's just impossible to get even the most important and you know almost universally accepted healthcare messages out there because people don't trust what they hear um, and people don't trust um, what 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 are often very trustworthy sources. Um, so I think a, a single source of information that, that 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 people could trust and and could trust because it was trustworthy. Um, that would be an, a, a phenomenal thing, and I think would really impu- improve human health if people really knew where they could go and get advice that they could rely on. Um, and I guess maybe for the third thing, I've got to think of something allergy specific. And my, my most recent role, just earlier this month, I've taken on um, the role of chair of the National Allergy Strategy Group. So, so the job of that is, is we're a collaboration between the British Society. And, and the national allergy charities and our role is to lobby for better allergy services um, and I think that's where my third one would be it's got to be um, just if nothing else just parity with other specialties if there was just the resource that went into other specialties in terms of um, critical mass of doctors and nurses and, and people with specialist training and research funding and all those other things that that, that you know make make us a specialty if that was just even the same as other specialties, that would be phenomenal. Um, and yeah, so I think that would be my third. Thank you, Adam. I really hope your three wishes are granted in some way uh, because they sound universal. <laughs> um, Okay, I'm afraid this, this is all we have time for on this episode of the EMJ podcast. I would like to thank Adam for speaking with us today and for sharing his valuable insights. Adam, it has been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Thank you so much for joining us. Well, thank you very much for having me along and listening to me. Thank you. Until next time, I'm Evgenia Kutsuki and thank you for listening to the EMJ podcast. Bye.